Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Olin Butler, the author of 13 novels including The Alleys of Eden and Mr. Spaceman and six collections of short stories including A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain which received the Pulitzer Prize in 1993 and Tabloid Dreams. He'll read from his story Banyan, published on Granter.com and we'll discuss the link between writing and sensuality, and why each story is a search for an identity. Robert, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Granta Basement. Thank you for being here and for reading your story. I'm delighted to be here, Ted. Mm-hmm. The story's entitled Banyan. I know what's happening. I wake and it's dark and a woman is beside me, naked and small, and she is waking too, and the room is still heavy with the incense she burned for her dead. My job is to count. Men, weapons, but I never see the men, except unknowingly the political cadre in the city. They are here, looking like everyone else in Hue, and I hear the weapons only from afar. I hunker in to do my order of battle work at the MacV compound on the south bank of the Perfume River, and in my few months... There have been just the horizon sounds, but I do know to recognize the singular pop of the enemy's AK-47s, and now I hear them nearby, and the night is coming alive with sounds of other weapons that I have known only on paper. I'm wrong. Wait. Listen. It's quiet, the night. The only sound is the racing of my heart, the pop of it in my ear, and I am back in the world, and I am old. I left Vietnam long ago, and I am old, and my hand gropes toward the naked girl. I can't even say her name right, but it means flower, and she is not here. I turn my face to the window. My live oak is jaundiced with the security light, and beyond it the sky is black. This past year, I have stretched out my hand to my wife a hundred times in the night, and she is not here. She has gone. I could not imagine her dying before I die. I did not expect to live past that night in Hue. Tet, 1968, the New Year offensive by the North, and I ran. I was six blocks away from the compound. I put on my pants, and I did not even look at her. I was in her little room. I bought her drinks at the bar. I bought her, and I realize that my hand is still extended to touch her. I have reached in the night to touch a Vietnamese bar girl instead of my wife, and they are both dead. My wife Maggie and the bar girl named Flower. I dare say she is dead, and I pull my arm back quickly, my left arm, and my face is flushed with shame. My throat clutches with shame at my betraying my wife tonight, even if it began in a dream. My arm aches with shame. And I understand. I am dying. The pain is beginning to run down my left arm. My throat is clutching. It is not from shame. I sit up. I will die. And I put my pants on and my shoes, and I do not look back at my bed and the girl named Flower does not speak, and I am down the back stairs into the dead fish stench of the alley, and the AK-47s are popping from across the river. The Viet Cong, 
or maybe even the North Vietnamese regulars. We don't know jack shit about them for all our counting. The enemy is taking the Imperial Palace. I go out into the street, and far down in the street lamps along the river I see the men moving. The men I count. I am a dead man. I turn and I run in the direction of MacVie. I run. I put my feet on the floor. I know the signs. I know my heart. I can call 911. I can call my daughter or my son, but I don't. I rise and I am unsteady, and I move across the room and out the door and along the hall, and I am at the top of the stairs, and I hold tight to the banister, and I descend. I am in my own backyard, and before me is the live oak, a hundred years old, two hundred maybe, and it will live two hundred more, and I knew it would some day need to hold me. Its arms are wide open, the lower horizontal branches thick as most trees, thick as water oaks and pin oaks, and I go to it and I turn my back to it and I sit heavily down in the crotch of two roots and I press back against my tree even as my chest begins to clench and the oak's trunk is rough. It touches me hard in the back in long uprunning ridges and I am rushing past the bar fronts dark now and past the passageways into rear courtyards and past the smells of mildew and dead fish and the smell of wood fires and from all directions now comes the din of weaponry of small arms and RPKs and the whoosh and suck and blare of rockets the sky flaring beyond the palace walls and they are hitting Taylok the city airport to the north and I see now men before me as well, a squad of dark-clothed men a block up the river, and gunfire is crackling everywhere, and now a needle-thin compression of air zips past my head, and I lunge into an alley mouth, and I am running hard, and figures are coming to doorways, and I think the local communist cadres are emerging. I think again that I am dead, and there is only darkness around me, and the alley slime underfoot, and I push hard. And if I am to die, I'd rather not see it happening, so I don't look right or left or feel any of the bodies coming out. I just run, and I run, and I am out of the alley, and I am in a pocket park and standing before a great dark form, a banyan tree. The pain drills down my left arm like a rifle round. The shooter is in my chest in the center of my chest. I let my head go back against the live oak, and I approach the banyan. It is old, and it is vast. Its aerial roots are thick as trees, and nuzzled together into a dense forest, propping up a billowing dark sky of leaves, and there is a deep inner curve to the roots, and a turning, and in the direction of the MACV compound there is heavy small arms fire now, and I hear the AK-47s, and I hear the answering M-16s, and I know where I belong. I enter the tree. I move into the turning, and I put my back to its roots, and I sit, and I draw my legs into me, and I am in the dark. I can see around the outcurving columns of roots. Bodies appear, nearly as dark as the night, moving quickly past, and I pull my head back, squeeze into myself. 
I close my eyes and smell a dank, wet earth smell, and something fainter beneath, an almost sweetness, and a little sharp thing in the nose, and I think of the girl's incense, and the dead she prayed for. I know this tree has killed another to live. These roots around me, holding me in the dark, began long ago by wrapping themselves around another tree, the strangler roots, embracing a living tree until it vanished, until it was dead inside the growing banyan. Rifles flare nearby, and I press back into the killing embrace of the banyan. I expect never to leave. And I lay my head upon my live oak, I am glad for its hardness against me, and I am glad to smell the damp Georgia earth around me, and the squeezing in my chest begins, the deep clamping in my chest. I am glad I am in my own country now, but I was sent to Vietnam, and I know this was meant to happen long ago, long, long ago. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, I want to start by talking about the narrator of this story. He seems to, he seems to move from the libidinal, from the desire, the sort of new flowering he feels for flower, this girl, um, through to a kind of um, he he experiences also the sort of the bitterness and the, the aftershocks of war. He also feels that very physical betrayal that shudders through him like electricity at some points, but through all of these different shocks um, he comes out the other side of it and in this story it seems to me that he wants to he wants to sort of fuse or merge with his environment finally, he wants to move beyond all of those sensations um, those kind of mortal shocks and become at one with the tree and the, the, the turn in the story that I really I find so moving and I think is so powerful is the is that the tree he's fusing with is is, is kind of a it's also betray it betrays its environment as well. The tree absorbs and and sort of consumes other trees. Um, so he's he's coming to rest in this place where you know he he finds peace in that. But the tree itself is also going through a kind of betrayal. So um, I wanted to ask you about whether you thought when you were writing the story about him fusing with you know whether it's the tree or the the stench of fish that he describes in the streets when he's remembering that. The, the sort of thinginess of the environment he wants to completely merge with it and become at one with it what do you say yeah, yeah uh, um, and by the way if you want to push it a little bit in a sense um, just as the banyan tree and I'm not I'm not one for symbolism mm -hmm. uh, and, and probably the real answer to the question you just asked I'm going to get back around to and sort of repudiate the whole premise of it but yeah. <laughs> good but but, <laughs> but if we let, let's stay within it because yeah. because after the fact it's a lovely and not inappropriate thing to do to to make those observations which I was thrilled to hear from you I mean mm -hmm. you what you say is correct about the story in a certain level mm -hmm. um an important level. And if you want to push that a little farther, mm. in a sense, though, what the story is really about is how just as the banyan tree grew, the, the banyan tree that saved his life mm. um, exists because it grew around another pr tree and, and killed it to live. Mm. 
and and what he's really feeling there at the end and with those last lines is that that Vietnam really did that to him. Vietnam grew around his previously existing life. Yes. And that he came back a banyan tree in a sense when the tree he was had vanished. Yes. And and so that um uh, that expectation of dying there that he had when he was there and particularly on that night that everything since seems you know well this really happened before it mm. was he has a sense of that 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 other tree inside the tree that finally came to exist in Vietnam if that makes sense yes it does yeah. now having said that I said all oh, that's inappropriate because mm. as far as the writer is concerned as mm. far as the, the act of creation is concerned mm. Um, my deep belief is that the only necessary uh, and, and indeed the, the primary encounter that a reader has with a work of literary art hmm. is, is not to understand it or parse it or to render it into any kind of idea, however elegant and even hmm. true, hmm. which you just did hmm. beautifully. The primary and only necessary encounter with that work is is to thrum to it mm. like you like the string on a stringed instrument yes quivering yes. the thing that used to be called the aesthetic response you yeah. know that visceral direct emotional and therefore utterly sensual reaction mm. the other stuff is a kind of follow-on it's a secondary thing and an unnecessary thing really mm. for the primary response and you know I've been teaching creative writing now for almost 30 years to mm -hmm. people who aspire to, 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 to write literary art and the, 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 the most primary thing I have to teach them is that art does not come from the mind mm. no matter how elegant the rendering of what they intend to write might be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know did I intend to have that tree be this or that the writer might say, however they intend the work to come out from their mind, to that extent they're going to fail as artists. Mm. Because the literary object, the art object, does not come from the mind. It does not come from the analytical faculty, no matter how elegant or, or perceptive. It does not come from ideas. Art comes from the place where you dream. It comes from your unconscious. And and. It's it's that instinctive flow that um, is crucial. I mean, literary artists struggle with this, aspiring ones, in uh, more keenly than other aspiring artists, because a young aspiring painter may talk and analyze and think before he starts to paint his painting, but the act of creation then is with a medium that is entirely sensual. He, he's going to dab a brush tip into color mm. and, and engage an empty white canvas and, and create the work. And the act of creation is through a medium that is entirely sensual. The same with a composer with sound and a dancer, a choreographer with, with movement. Mm. The literary artist... <coughs> The literary artist alone deals with a medium, language, that is not itself irreducibly sensual. If I bring too much thought, or any thought in a certain mm. way, to my 
writing. My medium not only is going to accept that and render that abstraction onto the page, mm. it's going to actually encourage it. It's going to suck me deeper into, or, or not deeper, it's going to suck me to the surface of thought. And, um, and my deep contention is that, that a literary object is like a painting, is like a, 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 a ballet, is like a symphony, is like any other work of art. It is, it is a primal, direct, sensual experience. And I, I completely agree. And I, and I think that you, you, you um, uh, it's, it's, it's partly a context thing. I, mean, I knew you agreed. Yeah. I knew you agreed. I just, yeah. I was glad you, you gave me a chance to, to fuss at you. No, it's to, good. To find the answer. To I that. think that, no, but you articulate something which I think is, is not often talked about in these, particularly in, in the context of a podcast, because you know, it's my job to ask you sort of questions about the construction of, course, of it. But, of but actually, what you're saying, when I when I read this story, I don't think that you're sitting there and kind of with a sort of architectural drawing of this. What 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 I marvel at, and I completely thrum to it. What I what I think is remarkable is that there's this um, that the subconscious can find that that your subconscious can find. It can find a mirror. It can find a mirror for itself in in the world, and and it doesn't um, it doesn't mean that it's 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 got a complete wildness to it. And I think what I find particularly inspiring about your work is that you seem to both be very much in touch, not across the board. I mean, I think that there are very um, rare um, bunch of writers who can do this, and I think you seem to be able to tap into the, the subconscious and yet your stories are extraordinarily marshaled and regulated and um, and and sort of choreographed almost. You know, mm. that there's there's a great kind of poise there and yet you're also writing from very deep, sort of a, a deep kind of well. Um, I guess that's just... Uh, uh, it's not something you can talk about. It's just the way. Well, it thanks. Is. No, I, I mean, I do. I, I, my job is to try to talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, my other job, my day job. Um, yeah, it. And, and and you know, I wrote um, a million words of Drek before I started mm. writing. Well, I mean, you know, I. Uh, it doesn't happen. I'm mean, not uh, unpublished Drek, by the way. This is not, <laughs> this is not a. I was going to say this is not, not self criticism that bad. That bad. No, 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 no. <laughs> These are no. I have five, un, five unpublished novels and forty four unpublished short stories and twelve un, you know, mm. whatever un, undone plays, mm. full length plays. Before I started, before something turned in me and, and and I wrote and published the Alleys of Eden, my first novel, and ultimately, I go back to what Graham Greene once said in answer to your question. Mm. Uh, or answer to your head scratching, um, <laughs> that he said, and by the way, this is a paraphrase because I can't remember the quote. Mm -hmm. He said, all good novelists have bad memories. Mm. He says, what you remember comes out as journalism. What you forget goes into the compost of the imagination. Mm. And it's the quality of your compost that leads to the quality of your work. Mm. Now, he's obviously talking about and in the context it was, it's from his memoir, Sort of Life. He's talking about um, the life experience of a writer. Mm. And he's absolutely right. But it seems to me that the thing that makes what you were describing, that paradox of 
the elegantly regulated and yet utterly free, associative, spontaneous mm. flow of mm. of words. The thing that makes that possible is this: that 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 compost heap of greens, the unconscious, is also the place where your good novelist, bad memory comes into play mm. in that with in this other way, and that is that that the craft and technique that you understand that you may have actually thought about or learned consciously mm. and, and this is where the pedagogy of creative writing often goes wrong and the way we talk about it, and even of of teaching how people how to read or just trying to understand stories goes wrong because we look at it from a kind of technique or craft sort of way or a thematic way or the, mm. or the structural, architectural way. Mm. What you know about the architecture of literary fiction, what you know about the craft and technique, that too properly should be forgotten. Mm. It also needs to go into your unconscious. It's a thing that the writer shouldn't really think about too much, you know, in this context, wonderfully so. Mm. But, no, I, but mm. so that... If you assimilate all of that knowledge, mm. all of that insight, let's call it, by your forgetting, you assimilate it into the same compost heat wherein resides that welter of moment-to-moment -moment sensual experience from your life and from your psyche mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. is, that has broken itself down to its elemental parts that can then freely metamorphize and, and, and reshape themselves into these sensual objects. If, if, if all of that's in the same unconscious, in the same compost heap, then that, the stuff that, that makes for the elegance can work directly on hmm. the, the wild stuff and help it to come out together help the wild stuff manage itself in its movement from unconscious to the fingertips to the screen. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It's, it's um, beautifully described. I, I, and I know that you'll take this as a compliment when I say that you, you have a remarkably rich compost heap, it seems, because you... <clears throat> um, evidently, your experiences as a veteran and your, your experiences... Um, I mean, in the story that you just read, there's a kind of... Um, sensory overload mm -hmm. it's extraordinary i mean i i was uh the the i mentioned the the stench the you know but also the the um i think the word pop recalls a couple of times the pop of artillery um it reminded me a lot of there's a story by beckett called ping mm. uh it's a beautiful really short um vignette and so many of your stories have that same compression and um uh and using that word really Acoustically, and musically, it mm -hmm. just kind of falls down the page, and um, so um, it's head scratching again, rather than the question. <laughs> but, I, I, but I guess it's it, it's. Let's talk about why, you, if you can say why, how you've come back in some ways to writing about this material, because you know you you have written extensively about Vietnam, but but your stories are far too populist to just say that that's your subject. Mm -hmm. I mean, you write about a great many other things. Um, 
and yet here you are and this feels to me a bit like an endgame story this character is in it in a kind of endgame and it also i mean it does echo a good scent from a strange mountain um which won the Pulitzer prize i think in 1993 um which is a, a fabulous collection of stories i would urge everyone to read but it's uh, and this does feel like it's an echo of that and maybe that's another part of the compost process you know mm -hmm. it sort of comes back around for you has it surprised yeah, absolutely that the, the compost it, it it keeps on dissolving it's not mm. like once you use it from the compost heap mm. you know you you can't reclaim the coffee grounds and and now put them aside out of the compost heap i mean it's still there working on me of course mm. um but but you know i've never been a vietnam writer a novelist uh, even when at some point in my career most of the work i'd done had something to do with that. I was at, I remember, uh, the National Gallery in, in Washington, D.C., uh, one afternoon uh, during a, a conference where that later the day, in that day, that same day, I was on a panel with Larry Heineman and Tim O'Brien and Francis Fitzgerald, and we were each asked how it, what it felt to be like or what your responsibility was as a Vietnam novelist. And they all gave answers to that. When it got to me, I said, look, I said, you know, if if you are an artist, if this is literary fiction you're writing, then, then to call us, either any of us, a, a Vietnam novelist. I, I just was at the National Gallery today, I said, hmm. and I saw some Monets. And I said, to call us Vietnam novelists is like calling Monet a lily pad painter. <laughs> That Vietnam is simply, you know, the the external circumstance. It's the pond and and the objects mm. in it and the slant of light, and what we're really getting at is the essence of the human condition behind that. Yeah. And so, um, and 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 that was not the only intense experience. I mean, I had my own laundry list, as so many writers do. Of you know, I was I worked in the steel mill during summers when I was going to college and. I drove a taxi cab, and I worked in the. I was in military intelligence in in Vietnam, which was a special thing. And I spoke fluent fluent Vietnamese for my first day in country, hmm. and and I spent most of my time not engaged in the war, but in fact, for seven months, I worked in Saigon and spent every every night uh, after midnight. I would wander into the steamy back alleys of Saigon where nobody ever seemed to sleep, and just crouch in the doorways with people, and they're very. Hmm warm and welcoming and they invite me into their homes and into their culture and into their lives and 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 then you know I went off to become the editor-in-chief of a business newspaper in New York and I've been married five times and I mean you know I've mm. I've this this has not been a life that is that has drawn its only intensity from mm. having gone to war no so I, I, there's there's so much more and even my sense of the war was different from other people's it was much more rooted in the in the in the human condition mm -hmm. in in a broader sense because war novels can get pretty pretty hermetically sealed where mm -hmm. it is a it is certainly we learn about about the human condition its capacity for violence and and and, and the, the, you know and about bravery and so forth i'm not diminishing that no but but that but but it, it it can become its own special thing there is the battlefield you right know, and it's and that we don't we understand that a battlefield something's going on very special there but um so you know I, my return now to vietnam i mean i'm six i'll be i'm 67 we'll be 68 in a couple of months 
and um, and when you got in touch with me, Ted, and, it, and honestly, it, it was about nature. It wasn't even about That's right. anything that would necessarily relate to Vietnam. Hmm. And and I had I've been putting this off for weeks, and I don't know if you know the day that you gave me my last deadline. On that morning, I got up at 5.30, and I, the deadline, because you're in London, was 10.30 in the morning, in my time, and at 5.45, I was going, you know, I'm just going to have to tell Ted that I just can't do this. And then a tough task, Then something happened, and two hours later, this story arrived through that tree. And when this story arrived, I know, now I'm, I'm now doing a kind of... I. I'm very glad it did arrive. Yeah, me too. And and someday, and and I don't know when, but with but before I die, I am going to write either. I'm going to either take this and write and and write this man as a novel, mm. or I will write a book of short stories as a, an image to good sense, wherein it's all about Americans who are coming to the end of their life in one way or another, and yet their life has always been mm. shaped by. Vietnam, mm. one way or another. Mm. One of those two books I will certainly write because you uh, sent me that email, Ted, and uh, and had me do this story, and 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 it will come back. Then Vietnam will then be the lily pad of of my own confrontation, which you know, obviously, even beginning now, I'm in pretty good shape. And I was going to say, I mean, if I'm in as good nick, I, I'll be happy. <laughs> oh well, thank you. And I've got you know I've got a good gen- good genes. My both my parents look very long lives, and um, I take good care of myself. So hmm. I expect this to last. But I'm you know, and and I've my fifth wife is just is like my first. She's absolutely wonderful, and and I finally got that right. So she's going to keep me young for a while too. But at That's some good. point, I'm already beginning. And I, I, obviously, I did there. Mortality is also in my unconscious at this point. Yes, and and, and coming to the surface. And it's not surprising that when when I will and I shall, thanks to you, and Granta, and John, uh, uh, that uh, I, I will um, absolutely uh, confront my own mortality someday in either a novel with this guy, or this is one of the many stories uh, that will that will that will combine, com- draw back on the Vietnam stuff, mm. the, the, that aspect of my unconscious, but in but because of it's residence not in that political, anthropological, no. you know, sociological situation, but rather because it is deeply rooted in my own sense of, of, of mortality, mm. and and by you know, if not rapidly, at least you know, down the tracks approach of death. Mm. But maybe, I mean, I, it's so kind of you to say that it was the email, but I feel like perhaps we, what we did was pay, perhaps kick up the fire a bit sure. and sort of let the flames break out. Because we, um, you know, I'm so, I'm so glad to, to take credit for that. Or maybe I should, <laughs> but, I, I, but I don't think it is. It is I think it's, there's something, there's, it seemed that there's something alive there that, that, that you want to write about. And, and if we've helped you... Knock on that. You have. I mean, I, I'm not. You know, it's just when and how I was going to get around to it, and mm. I'm glad I did get mm. around to it when I did. So, but just to ask you briefly about you're here now in London, and you're 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 researching another book. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier that you wrote some plays, and I know that you have 
um, the theatrical past. And mm-hmm. so, am I right in thinking you tra- you were an actor at some point? You were yeah, I studied as an actor for mm-hmm. for some time. Yeah, okay. yeah. But um, and and you read beautifully, and I feel like there is a a, a theatrical kind of component your character into your, to your work and I, mm-hmm. I what sort of led you back to London if you can say or if it's if it's maybe it's too early to talk I'm about I'm always led back to London um, yeah yeah uh, in terms of this novel I'm mm. I'm actually writing it um, in, in my reimagining of myself um, which occurs over and over uh, my novels seem quite different from each other mm-hmm. um, I have not on not infrequently embraced what the literary world thinks of as those as the genres, you know. Right. One of my novels was entitled Mr. Spaceman, mm-hmm. and it came out of a short story that was in a book called Tabloid Dreams, where I took the craziest of 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 headlines out of the craziest of tabloid supermarket tabloid papers, um, and I, I wrote the serious literary story that might actually reside behind such a serious funny I've never you know I rarely separate the two it's hard to tell sometimes yes read our tabloids yeah <laughs> and uh, in fact my most my most uh, anthologized story ever is a story called uh, Jealous Husband Returns in Form of Parrot mm-hmm. from that book but one of those stories um, prompted a novel called Mr. Spaceman and in, in, in where Spaceman is um, under orders to reveal himself on the, the millennium and he's really very uncomfortable with that he's he's recently married a 40 year old hairdresser from Bovary, Alabama uh, earthling and she and he's just kidnapped a, a, a charter bus of gamblers going from Houston to the casinos in Lake Charles Louisiana so I mean it, it's 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 uh, science fiction mm. a couple of years ago I wrote a novel entitled hell which is set entirely in hell the main character in the book being the anchor man or the presenter, news presenter for uh, for the evening news in hell. Right. And it, it's, it's very crowded there. I mean, it's a, <laughs> a, a fantasy book, you know. And last year, I, I wrote a novel that O Magazine, Oprah Winfrey's magazine, mm. named a book of the week and the book of the week and called it a new old fashioned romance. And in some mm. ways, it is. Well, I have I have found myself writing for a guy named Otto Penzler, who's the, sort of the dean of American editors of um, uh, mystery, suspense, espionage, and thriller books. Mm. Uh, I, I, he discovered a short story I did from a book called Had a Good Time, where I wrote stories based on my old my collection of picture postcards written between 1906 and 1917. Mm. One of these cards was in the Atlantic Monthly and won for, and the story did very well, won for them and for me um, um, a National Magazine Award in Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was in the voice of a of a swashbuckling American war correspondent mm. who's covering the American invasion of Mexico in 1914. This passed under the radar in April of 1914, even before, you know, months before World War One began, the United States invaded Mexico. What? We occupied, yeah, yeah, we occupied Veracruz and its environs. Although Woodward Wilson stopped there, we didn't. The, the generals and the, and the war correspondents were expecting them to go on march on to Mexico City. You know why? We didn't like the 
the dictator running Mexico. Yeah. We wanted to protect American oil interests, and we fully expected the Mexican people to help welcome us with open arms as their liberators. Right. This is turns out to be this is very familiar. You know, it's yeah. an old American tradition. Yes. Anyway, um, Otto saw this story, and he he loves the literary writers as well. He's published half a dozen of Joyce Carol Oates' books, for instance, under mm -hmm. his mysterious press imprint. Mm -hmm. And he says, I want to give you at least two book con a two-book contract for at least two novels in this guy's voice. And th honestly, that that voice had not... It, you know, I write a lot in first person. That voice had, n had not left me. And I, th I, I gave him a very literary answer. I said, uh, oh boy, you betcha. <laughs> so, and, and, so I wrote a book um, called The Hot Country. And this character, oddly enough, not only... Are, not only is the premise of that book very similar to the current age, much of what happened in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, very resonant in lots of interesting, nuanced, subtle, and important ways, are, are very resonant into our times. Hmm. And this character happens to be, um, his, he was, his mother's a very famous actress, he was born backstage in a theater in New Orleans. He's a war correspondent. He turns into doing some agent, you know, government agent work for, mm -hmm. for the American government. And I was a spy. I was in Vietnam in war. I was the editor-in-chief of a newspaper, a business, investigative business newspaper. I... Um, studied acting one um, you know the guy is actually closer to me than hmm. than almost any character i've written and the 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 issues of that era hmm. and the issues of our present era really are organically resonating for me into the kind of into that sort of espionage thriller hmm. genre just as i've i've felt that the science fiction genre and the romance genre and the fantasy genre have been just the right ways to express my unconscious. Yes. Before this is, um, so I'm I'm very comfortable with this. These feel as literary as anything I've written, mm. but but it's as if the biological improbabilities aside, um, Ernest Hemingway and Indiana Jones had a bastard child, and that would be. <laughs> Christopher Marlowe Cobb, my my guy. Well, the first novel, The Hot Country, is now out, set in Mexico. The second one is finished, hmm. and um, set in 1915, early in 1915. Starts. I, I sank the Lusitania this summer. It's on. It starts there. Hmm. Nice London section mm -hmm. there, and then it goes on to Istanbul. It's called The Star of Istanbul. Hmm. Novel number three is going to be set entirely in London. Hmm. And um, and so I am ab absolutely. I just had a uh, yesterday a wonderful tour with a very helpful uh, the theater manager at the Duke of York's Theater. So yeah. I've, I've I was I was walking the ground that my character would walk in, in probably the very first chapter of this next novel, which I'm going to write in this coming year. Fantastic. Well. Um there's so many more questions I want to ask you, but I, it, it, I mean, just to finish on one final one, um, y it does seem like you're a very peripatetic writer. I mean, you've, you've lived in a great many different places, and I wonder what your relationship with place is like. I mean, do you 
when you're here tracing the steps of your character, can you go back to your hotel room and and you know do you find being in the place prohibits you from from writing about it or there sometimes there's that sort of strange kind of cat and mouse thing where you kind of run away from the place and then you can write about it is that something that happens to you? I, I think you know that I think the truth behind that is similar is related to the Graham Greene thing mm. the, it's the forgetting yeah um, I have a really bad memory mm-hmm. um, I even am able to effectively uh, edit myself work my sentences over pretty much sentence a sentence I'm, I, I write a sentence and I can go back moments later and read it and it mm-hmm. will look a little surprising to me. I you know, so that um I have a pretty good pretty short gap between experiencing and writing. Yeah. So for me, yeah, I can I can pretty much do that. When um not that I have to here. I'm I'm not gonna start writing the novel until because I have to do a lot of pre dreaming, dream storming I call mm-hmm. it. Hmm. Um, and, and I will probably start writing words in January or February, hmm. so it, there will be a gap. And I will mind the gap, and uh, hmm. and, and um, but but yeah, I'm my gap time, and there, the gap time is, as I say, it's related. If, if literal memory is a terrible inhibition hmm. in the creation of an art object, it sits there. And will not mitigate itself readily. And mm. everything, the, the work of art is an organic object, and everything must stay malleable and negotiable until the final object f- finds its shape. Mm. And and literal memory mm. is it, it won't yield the way it should. Mm. And and that means even the street I just stepped out of. Um, just want to ask you one final question. Um, which is that we've mentioned very briefly that these stories, um, they kind of absorb, they have a, a kind of organically sort of contemporary feel to them. Banyan, the story that you read, it feels very much like it speaks to the present moment in that there's a sort of historical betrayal, um, betrayal by one's country. Um, you mentioned the story about Mexico, which is extraordinary, and it feels like, do you feel in some ways that when you're looking at the contemporary world that history is repeating itself? And do you ever, do you ever have an urgency to, to address that um, head on in, but it seems to me that, that you don't need to because it's, it's, it's there in your fiction yeah I, I yes part of the thing that I you know I'm ravenous about the world mm. I mean artists aren't intellectuals we're sensualists you know and we're taking the world in constantly but um, and certainly what I'm responding to um, uh, involves and includes the, hist- the the ongoing unfolding history of the world. Hmm. I follow the news closely, and I do it as directly as I can. I mean, I, I look at the images as often as I can, um, and th- that the the in this present instance, for for example, that. Then I'm I'm writing a few books in the 1914 and 1918 era that are on the periphery of the battlefield of the war. It's it's about the other things happening, the deeper issues. Um, my my gravitation to the early 20th century in this 
present work certainly has to have been influenced by my ongoing response to the world around me here at the beginning of the 21st century. Mm. And and when, we, when I stop to think about it as we rightly are doing here, uh, it, it is that sense of... It's, and it's not as if... There are some of us who are pure and we are experiencing the betrayal of countries and governments. Um, the, the impulse to betray that governments show collectively, I think what we all have to recognize is this is the human condition, micro and macro. And, mm. and we... Um, and my... Um, my engagement with all this is is reflected by what I just said. It, it right. all comes back to the individual. Artists deal with the world one individual soul at a time. Yes. Con the larger context that that we're put in, this man in his bedroom having a heart attack, having been a Vietnam veteran in all of his past there, yeah. and the Vietnam elements of that, the 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 the, the absolutely appropriate and 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 clearly artistically invoked sense of the larger um, uh, movements of governments and and ideologies mm. is, is there. But as an artist, my focus always has to come back down to the individual self. Mm. That a single human entity yearning. Art, fiction is the art form of human yearning. That's what makes stories go, you mm. know. Plot is simply yearning, challenged and thwarted, and I think there may be a unified field theory of yearning, which is that that we yearn for. In, in most great literature, if you keep taking away the layers of government and betrayals of of, of, of ideologies and governments and and institutions, and you get down to all of us, uh, and, and and indeed. It motivates many of the betrayals because this is even the corporate yearning of, mm. as people get together is that that we are that we yearn for a self for an identity for a place in the universe mm. and even the rapacious are trying to define themselves mm. because they have they are shoulder to shoulder shoulder with other mm. others who are you know are, are in the rapacious mode that they are. Mm. And it's as much about the, the sense of identity they have in what they are doing as it is about what they are getting. And the, and the, and the conquering and the owning and the possessing mm. is an object, is an act of self-identification. And uh, I mean, that's, the, that's the question that every one of us individually wakes up with every morning. We open our eyes and we go, who the hell am I? Mm. And what the hell am I doing here? And, and that's, the great, that's the great question of literature and indeed the great question of our very existence. Mm. Mm. Gosh, well, I, I, it reminds me, and that's another Beckett line, I think, the beginning of one of his books, Who Then, How Then, Where Then? You know, the opening, and I, that it strikes a chord there. Exactly. I, um, I, I wish we didn't, but we have to close now. But um, it's, uh, it's such a pleasure talking to you, Robert. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my, been my delight, Ted. Thank you.